As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Movies That Made Me, with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. I'm really psyched. Tell me... is this is this possible that I feel like because it's we're going back now long enough that that who the hell knows what I remember correctly? There was there was this movie that you would hear about in certain circles, and while I I cannot pass as a true hardcore horror nerd, I am a fan, and I have a, at least enough of a toe in that world that I have friends who are very very deeply immersed in it. And there was this was back in the day for some of our younger listeners. There was a thing called VHS. Which stood for what did that stand for, Joe? I don't even. Uh, very high, shit. <laughs> <laughs> very, very hard to see, actually, in retrospect. And uh, people would give you sometimes you 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 know through the through the dark underground grapevine, you get these tapes like third or fourth generation of some great movie that someone had stumbled across somewhere, and and there was this vampire movie called Habit, and. I remember watching it and there was something about, and I don't want to dismiss the work that went into it by all these, you know, tremendously gifted craftspeople, but there was something about it that really worked on third generation VHS that just added to the kind of discomfort of the thing. Um, and that was really the first time. I mean, obviously I'd seen uh, our guest in things before and sort of gone, Oh yeah, that guy, I like that guy. But for me, at least th- this was sort of the arrival of Larry Fessenden as, as a horror filmmaker um to to be reckoned with and it's been fascinating to me to watch that grow into this kind of industry almost of of kind of independent horror and then you branch out into other things um and you know living here in la we're like anyone who's not doing it in la is doing it somewhere out in the middle of nowhere um i don't know new york is that where it was <laughs> i've heard of new york um, but, uh, uh, Larry's been making sort of really interesting and, and, uh, incredible films, like with a very, I can't, I still, I wrestle with your aesthetic all the time. I read somebody sort of, uh, there, there was a John Cassavetes comment somebody made once. I thought that's, that's, that's not, that's not unfair. Um, and, uh, you, you're just a, a really interesting filmmaker and, um, he's, he's in a new film, uh, that is about to come out called, uh, Jacob's Wife with Barbara Crampton, which, um, I, I described to somebody as, uh, it's the phantom thread with vampires. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love movies about codependency. That's all I'm going to say. I don't want to ruin anything. Um, but, but you're terrific in that. And, uh, as always, but you didn't, you didn't direct that one. And were you involved in its distribution as well? Or is this, was this, um. 
You just showed up to play. Uh, I pretty much just showed up to play. Although the truth is, is that Barbara had approached me somewhat uh, a couple of years ago and said, uh, uh, do you want to play Jacob? And, and then she was still toying around with the script. And she said, you have any ideas for people who might uh, help uh, do another polish? So, you know, she was engaging me a little bit as a fellow producer of, of indie pictures. But in the end, she went off, figured her thing out and, uh, and then brought me in to play the role. So that's, it's nice to walk on and just be on a set as an actor. You're still contributing in a low budget right. film. You're still helping build the movie. And I knew the director, Travis Stevens, and I knew Barbara. Uh, so we felt like we were all working together, but uh, it was her picture and I was just there to serve. <laughs> Fantastic. No, it's, it's, it's a delight. Um, if one can say such a thing about such a movie, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but, uh, yeah, when, when your name came up, I was like, that, that's a guy I'd love to get on our show. You seem tailor-made for it. It's like, we're, we, we don't talk to you about your work. That's it. We're not going to say another word about it. Um, if you don't well, know, everyone. I was talking about the last winter. What? Um, about the last winter. My favorite. Oh, is that your favorite? Well, any 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 movie where people freeze their balls off to make the movie, I have I'm I'm in awe. I, I just I can't I can't do that anymore. Even Vancouver is too cold for me now. <laughs> we filmed in Iceland in the dead of winter, uh, and uh, we did have to shut down for a blizzard or two. <laughs> it was really uh, fantastic, and yet oddly enough, the crew didn't complain at all compared to like my New York. Uh, uh, indie crews will complain if lunch is five minutes late, but here in the middle of a blizzard, the Icelanders never, uh, never bitched at all. They were very accommodating. It was a great, I really love the robustness of it. So, uh, yeah, Joe, I myself am getting a little soft in my old age, but that was back at the peak when I was ready for adventure raised on Werner Herzog, uh, aesthetic, you know, <laughs> those, those Icelanders are hardy people. They are hardy indeed. <laughs> It's it's the cold. I can't do the cold thing. It's uh, uh, I, I can't, and, and it's not the weird thing about that movie is it was not foisted on you. You wrote it. Um, you you sat there and went, "I'm going to set a movie in this incredibly cold place that I'm then going to have to go work in." And but you originally planned to shoot it on sets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I have my producer. My producer took me all the way to uh, Alaska, the northern climb. Uh, the northernmost uh, city in Alaska where they drill for oil. And uh, that was so cold that I remember we were out exploring and I started feeling like my fingers were losing their touch. And I just abandoned my friend in the, I just went back to the tiny little hotel and I realized I'm, I'm, this is the meaning of cowardice. I am not <laughs> sure that every man's coming out of this alive. I'm only taking care of number one. Have, have you ever thought of setting a horror film in, say, Tahiti? Uh, that was always the joke, I can assure you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> during the last winter, that's all we talked about, the sequel that was in the Bahamas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, I, my, my hat is off to you for, for all of that. And um, uh, But anyway, yeah, we'd love to talk to you, though, about um, the films that have inspired you along the way stuff that uh, turned you on, set you on fire, made you want to do this? Well, I, uh, I sent you guys a list. It's a fairly standard list, I suppose. We, 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 pre we pretend you didn't, that's all. Oh, I see. And, and Joe never sees them. Joe has no idea what's coming. <laughs> well, I would love to talk about the movies that, that 
made my uh, passion for film really uh, ignite. You know, there's there's classic films to talk about, and uh, and then there's all the odd sort of unexpected ones that come your way and, and sort of make an impact, even though you're not quite sure why, or, or you can't even right. remember. Those are my favorites, like the attack of a, a crab. What is it called? Crab monsters. Yeah. That movie, like what the hell? It still haunts me to this day. I'm Wait, not seriously. <laughs> it's a very unusual movie. I mean, it's a, it's a movie where the monsters absorb people's minds and can speak in their, in the, in the voices of the people that they eat. Yo, you know, another one of that nature. Do you know the film um, The Crawling Eye? Oh, yeah. One of the weirdest movies. These people are stuck in a hotel, and then on the mountain is this big eye, which is sort of made out of cellophane or something. But uh, it's it, these are movies that haunt you, and they're, you're sort of indefinable. And it it's what keeps you loving horror, because they're they're so uh, off, off kilter. But uh, Well, there is that, there is that thing <clears throat> that, yeah, literally anything can happen. Yeah, which is always kind of nice, you know. If it's uh, if it's uh, you know a, a couple sitting and arguing over their marriage, there's kind of a limit as to what can happen. But uh, <laughs> well, that's why you make a genre version of the Cassavetes. That was exactly. the point about exactly. me was uh, making horror films as if uh, he was Cassavetes in the 1930s Universal Studios. So I, I love that combo. Because that really is kind of my orientation. So what, what like, when you saw, um, was The Crawling Eye something you saw early, or is that something that hit you later in life? Oh, good Lord, no. These are childhood <laughs> memories that I can't quite uh, distract from my actual life. But, you know, when I was little, I, would, uh, I was a New Yorker. And uh, if I was lucky, my parents would go on day trips during the weekend, and I would sit in front of the TV and watch uh, the horror movie of the of the hour, you know, we had Chiller Theater and we had uh, uh, the Million Dollar Movie and all these different. Uh, and and every Sunday you'd look in the New York Times and you could map out your whole week when right. these the movies were playing. Uh, this was actually before VHS regarding your VHS story. So I grew up when movies were very precious and um, it was all very illusory and. And, you know, you didn't even always see the movie. Sometimes you just read the, the, the magazine or the horror uh, comic that, that had a picture. Like there's a movie called The Reptile Lady. And it's this amazing still of this woman who has a uh, reptile skin. And I've never seen the movie, but it's sort of seminal in my mind. And well, yeah, that was, yeah, you conjure with them, right? As a child, you yeah, start to imagine what could possibly happen. And, and you couldn't rewatch movies like the kids today. They just... Right. Well, now they stream, but even, you know, VHS and DVD. So spoiled these kids, uh, because in my day, it was your memory of something or even your conjuring of it, you know, from a single photograph or poster. All this was very essential. And if you you missed it, if you missed it, you had to wait uh, for maybe another year before they might run it again, you know. Amazing. I mean, I remember as a kid, I think I've talked about this in the show, I remember as a kid just hearing over and over again about um, Michael Powell's Peeping Tom which was a film that was never going to show up on TV. Yeah. And I grew up in Philadelphia. And then one day it showed up at the TLA, which is a great record theater downtown on a weekday. And I skipped school to go sit through like four showings of it. Cause who knew that you would ever get a chance to see it again? <laughs> you know, I wanted to have a recording of it in my head. Absolutely. Well, you know what I used to do is I used to record movies on cassette. On audio. Yes. Audio cassette. 
And as a result, I mean, I know all the uh, footsteps in Casablanca. You know, it's not just, uh, <laughs> it's not just the damn piano playing and the, you know, here's looking at you, kid. It was the, all the little moments. And it made me really love sound design mm. and realize how much that's part of the world of a film. Yeah. And uh, even Jaws, uh, one of my favorite movies in, in later in life, um, <laughs> I, I snuck a tape recorder into the, the theater and I thought that I was, it might as well have been a grand heist of the, the highest order. I, you know, it's sweat dripping down my brow as the film. And, and then uh, the one, you had to flip the cassette and I know <laughs> by heart. But I don't know the beginning of Quint's speech because the, I let the cassette run out. So it's one of the tragedies of my life. So uh, all of this was, just speaks of our generation, my generation, uh, when, when all of this was more precious. Media was much yeah. more elusive. And you had to fill in uh, the blanks. And that yeah, I just had this, this almost Proustian flashback to that, that thudding in my heart when you're flipping the cassette and the movie's quiet and you're worried someone might hear you oh, yeah. know what you're doing. And, and, and what are my parents going to do if I miss high school to spend it in jail? <laughs> I know. It was literally, this is a felony. <laughs> felony. And Spear, Spielberg will we'll hear about this. And oh I'll God. Yeah. yeah. You'll never work in show business if that happens. Yeah. <laughs> But did you did you ever take something like like Reptile Woman or some film that you hadn't seen that you played? Did you ever write or start to write at least the movie that had appeared in your head? Well, in a way, although speaking of Jaws, the funny thing is that I was so obsessed with that movie that I um, I built the boat six mm. feet long out of balsa wood with everything down to the little tiny beer cans and. It was, <laughs> To scale with uh, G.I. Joes, which are foot-tall little yeah. dolls in the old days. And I shaved the dolls to look like Brody and Hooper. And, uh, and then I took the boat out into the pond, and, uh, and I filmed a little bit of it. I, I wrote the script, and in my script, the shark wins. Um, and, uh, so we're off and running now in your career. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so I admit I never finished the film. Uh, but there are little snippets online, and the boat is gorgeous as a as a act of sort of hubris and folly, both at once. And all the details, every single harpoon I handcrafted, and you know the barrels were made out of little spice jars. If you picture painting those yellow, and it's really uh, an act of mania. Do you still have this artifact? Yes, it's in the oh. basement of uh, my parents' home in Cape Cod. It's great. In a bottle. <laughs> oh, it's a very big bottle. <laughs> and what did, did you, uh, what did you make the shark out of? More folly. I mean, these are really why, I think it was very clear I was never going to be a successful filmmaker because I just made some bad decisions. So I made it out of wire and then uh, paper mache, which I think we can all recognize quite quickly is not, not water. water. <laughs> so then I had the brilliant idea of covering the paper mache with, uh, liquid rubber, which I did, and it it survived one or two uh, outings, uh, and uh, enough to get me in the local Cape Cod paper. Uh, but then the shark is now just this sort of sagging. It's a very very sad example of my ambition not quite hitting the the road. 
<laughs> so were you forced then to shoot around it to find new ways to create? Because that seems like just like the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I felt very uh, a kinship to uh, Spielberg with my struggles. <laughs> yes, I think I think we should do a new thing because we are talking about his work, Joe. It should be like we can only we can only talk about movies that inspired you and movies you made before you were sixteen. <laughs> That <laughs> may cut down on the guest list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh man, that's fantastic. Um, well, cool. Well, give us give us another movie. Well, uh, one movie that I wanted to bring up because I don't even know the director, which shows how sort of obscure it is. But uh, it was a fulcrum in my life. Um, uh, it's Man of a Thousand Faces, and it just was sort of. Uh, I was so obsessed with Lon Chaney. And once again, this was all mostly from the magazines. I wasn't doing the hard research of watching, you know, silent movies, but the images of Chaney and his makeup and the whole idea of being uh, a, a thousand faces and don't step on it. It might be Lon Chaney. All of this was, you know, Forrest Ackerman, of course, wrote all these goofy gags in the, the pages of famous monsters. Anyway, I loved him. Then I loved Karloff and Jack Pierce and the whole legacy of these films. Uh, and along came this movie that was a biopic of uh, Lon Chaney. And I loved it because he had a tragic life and that appealed to my, you know, my morose sensibility. But it was played by James Cagney. And this is how I learned to love movies through actors, because previously it was like Karloff and, you know, they were really actors who were playing monsters. So it wasn't quite as much about performing. Right. And I really hooked into Cagney. And then I started watching uh, all the Warner Brothers films uh, that he was in, uh, including musicals, because I always liked musicals. So I just I loved that there was this incredibly spunky actor who could do musicals and gangster films. And I really got into a whole other world of movies. It kind of helped me depart from horror. So I consider it a fulcrum uh, in my in my life, that one bio. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Who did direct it, Joe? Joseph Pevney, but he he was one of the sort of contract guys that they were had at Universal at the time. That was that was positioned as their golden jubilee movie or some 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 anniversary they were supposedly having in 1957. And and so there was a huge hoopla uh about it. And of course it's you know it's it's not exactly verbatim uh, in as to what, how it really happened <laughs> they, they took a lot of liberties but, but, actually, uh, but it's good it's there's quite a bit of tragedy in it of course he had deaf parents which was you know um sort of shooed in as an explanation but there was also great conflict with um his wife and uh just there was some aspect of the tragedy of it that I think played into my sense of self-pity. Even at that age, I was always <laughs> feeling like the burden of showbiz and, you know, playing monsters as an expression of your outsiderness. So it really spoke to me. And uh, and then, as I say, it was sort of my gateway to other types of movies, like the gangster films, the, the social realism of Warner Brothers uh, really spoke to me. And Cagney was a cool actor because I always liked that he... Um, you know, was beloved and so on, but he was always fighting this system and fighting uh, his bosses. And he he started the Screen Actors Guild with Betty Davis, and they were all scrappy and fighting for workers' rights. And so there was a sense of. Um, and then he left showbiz in 1961. He just said, "I've had enough," and he became a 
farmer in Martha's Vineyard. And I, I just liked his aesthetic of being a person first and, and, and showbiz was something he clearly cared about, but he, he never let it lead him and own yeah. him. Yeah. He was, I think my first awareness of him was like through Bugs Bunny cartoons. You know, because I can't remember seeing some movie, I can't remember what, and recognizing that, oh, this is that guy. <laughs> That's right. Well, guy. and they also, of course, and maybe this is what you're thinking of, but, you know, the, the Edward G. Robinson voice was made famous in the cartoons as well. Ah, yeah, it's like you, Shay. Ah, yeah. Get it? That was Edward G., <laughs> who's another fantastic actor. I just yeah. watched Scarlet Street the other day. What oh. a wacky movie. That's great. Yeah, he's so good. He's so good. Oh wow! Um, but that's cool. But I love, I love how. Yeah, it's sort of like so that movie sort of uh, cracked the door through your love of genre and kind of pulled you into other stuff. Because yeah, because that's the thing, I guess, with horror and stuff like that is you sort of become attached to kind of actors. So it's like you start going, you know, oh, Karloff, I'll go see a Karloff movie. Oh, absolutely, and yeah, I and then you know, years later, I became drawn to movies through the actors. Uh, you know, when I did sort of speak come of age in the seventies, it was uh, Jack Nicholson and, and then De Niro and Hoffman. And, you know, these are classic cliches of my generation, but they really were, you would track them for their yeah. movies. And it was less clear to me uh, the role of the director. Although I like to point out a movie called Suspicion, which is, I think by some accounts, a lesser Hitchcock, but to me, it's actually the epitome of Hitchcock because it's got great humor as a strong woman, Joan Fontaine and Cary Grant, who's just one of my favorites. I always liked the old movie stars and he among them uh, was one of my favorites. And, but the point is I saw suspicion when I was really quite young and I didn't really understand what films were nowadays, this generation, they don't even understand that this isn't all very obvious. But in the old days, you just watched stuff on television. You didn't know what you would see and how important the director was. But uh, I felt something. I felt the sense of suspense, the humor, the control, the glowing milk, you know. The glowing famous. milk, yeah. So there were things that were happening in that movie that I think entranced me. And I just knew I was in the hands of a great director or, or, or a great something. And it's fun now. In retrospect, I still cite Hitchcock as my favorite filmmaker. and it's. I just intuited it uh, as a kid. Um, and the other thing about that movie that I love to think about is that he sort of disowned it and said that he couldn't have the ending he wanted. Uh, but I actually don't believe that. I think that's Hitch building his own mythology because the actual way the real movie or the, the original story ends is a letdown. It's not as good. And it would have been a movie called Premonition because she would have been right to suspect her husband. But the beauty is maybe because Hitchcock was forced into a happy ending, uh, you remain unsure if uh, the Cary Grant character is a, uh, a lout and a murderer. And so therefore you are left with a feeling of suspicion. So yeah. my defense. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Hence the title. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. But it's true. It's funny because, yeah, there would be Hitchcock films that I would enjoy as a kid that, that, you know, if it were another director, they wouldn't have roped you in as much. And I, I think. Don't uh, say yeah. rope. 
<laughs> Rope, Rope would like as a kid. I, I don't know if that would, but because um, I, I I saw it first when they re-released it. I guess when was that? Like early eighties. Well, it was out of a whole bunch of those pictures were out of yeah. circulation for many years. But but as a kid, there was just you know I couldn't enunciate it. But now, and you've sort of said you know when you talk about the milk and things like that, he's having fun. He's having fun with the medium, and like you're you're nine years old, and you can recognize that even if it's all these sophisticated adults in a world you don't understand. You know, absolutely. And yeah. the lady vanishes a lot of the early ones. Oh, there's yeah. just something going on. And uh, Guillermo del Toro said that I just saw an interview, but I always thought he was very articulate in pointing out that you can read a Hitchcock movie. You can actually see his choices. And, and some people feel that's very mannered, but I feel like it's watching, you know, a, a bit of sculpture as mm -hmm. well as you're involved with the story. Cause he, despite his, you know, not liking actors of course he knew perfectly well the actors were why you're watching the movie so uh but the craft sort of being able to see oh this is a long shot that's going from you know a wide to somebody blinking you can feel that there's a thought that that's an articulated sentence that there's real craft it's just a delight and you're right i think even a kid can can read that and it's a wonderful introduction to cinema and you can come back to it uh over and over yeah 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 yeah. it's it's um yeah there's just a sense of fun even in the really dark stuff that, uh, yeah that i love um cool cool what else do you got well i have to talk about night of the living dead because um you know i grew up on the universal pictures like uh frankenstein i love the wolfman i love the creature from the black lagoon and i like all the uh spin-offs it was fun the mashups and you had Glenn Strange playing the monster instead of, you know, and then when Bella played it, it was crazy because it doesn't look good. So there's this whole legacy. If you're a universal horror fan, you know, you really pick apart all the things. And it was so crazy that Bella Lugosi, who was Dracula, was playing the hunchback, but the hunchback was Fritz Lang. Or, I mean, Fritz, uh, not Fritz Lang. Anyway, on it goes. So you're obsessed with all of this. And then one night I see uh, a show called Night of the Living Dead, black and white, seems great. Um, I'm gonna watch it. My parents are already in bed and I settle down to this, uh, what appears to just be another sort of quirky uh, black and white horror film. And there was something about it that just seemed to almost torque. <laughs> and, and I was like, this is so uh, dark. And also the thing that's charming is in the beginning, the first zombie that comes and the tormenting brother says to his sister, they're coming to get you, Barbara. So I was like, that's so meta before meta was meta. Like, that's so weird. They seem to be referencing, you know, um, uh, 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 Karloff. And they've seen horror and, films. Yeah. And like what's happening? My brain started to sort of fracture. And then the, the course of events was just much more desolate. Mm -hmm. And, um, and slightly appalling. And, and it was, uh, what I'm obviously saying is that it was the ushering in of a new generation of horror makers, but because it was black and white, you felt still oriented. Um, obviously his follow-up was this gaudy color film, which I actually don't love as much as most people. Some people go so far as to say, uh, Dawn is a better film. But to me, the austerity of Night of the Living Dead and the, the, the struggle, and of course, the political underpinnings, which he insists he wasn't doing on purpose, but it has a feeling of 1968, the racial tension, the, the white family in the basement, uh, um, and the fantastic 
all the weird stuff, the black guy slapping the, the silly white woman, uh, all of this is really wonderfully shocking. And, you know, it felt wildly contemporary. Uh, yeah. in my little television that had played me just a nice Karloff movie only, <laughs> only days before. So I felt very, um, well, uh, shocked in the best way. So that's still when people say my favorite movie, uh, uh, or at least horror film, I, I cite good old uh, Night of the Living Dead. Also, years later, you realize, oh my God, it's an indie film, so resourceful, so uh, fantastic. Yeah. And um, yeah, I remember, I think, were you there, Joe, when, when um, was it was it a double screening of that? And maybe it was Texas Chainsaw Massacre oh, at the Cinematheque, and they were showing the new Criterion print of Night of the Living Dead. And I had not seen it. You know, it was a movie I'd seen 1,300 times. Well, but often often looking terrible because it fell in the yeah. public domain. Yeah, yeah. And, but I had not seen it in years. And it was just, you know, and you're like, oh, this will be fun. It'll be nice to see how it looks. I couldn't believe how immersed I got into it immediately. It was just, you, you know, you can almost see a film too many times. And it was kind of nice to have taken a break and to see this new version. But it's it's... It's an unbelievable movie. And I'm with you. And maybe I'll cut this in retrospect. I, 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 you can say this on the public record. I gotta be, but Dawn of the Dead, I mean, I loved it the first time I saw it because it's all surprising. But when I go back to it, it's it's a little, it's too friggin' long. It's just a little slow, right? It's, I think the word is indulgent. Okay. Is that what <laughs> now it can is, but isn't art isn't it all indulgent, Joe? If you're not indulging yourself in your movie, well, yeah, else? but you know when you do when you're doing a 75 minute story and you're playing it out at two and a half hours, it's uh, it, it's going to suffer from it because it gets repetitious. There's some great stuff, though, of course. But my issue was that uh, you know the just the color took away uh from some of the effects like the zombies were were they white i don't know there, there's something about it it all just got a little um and you know of course the good thing about it is how it plays as satire and a commentary on the on commercialism and all of that's wonderful but um it didn't feel as as truly somber as the as the first one well yeah and there is that thing and i mean other people have noted it that that black and white just feels more realistic somehow well, it's yeah. like a newsreel. It yeah. Like a, and it's um, shot like a newsreel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there's something about the black and white in every version I've seen, from the crappy old VHS ones to the new print. There's just there's something distinct about the look of that movie, just the the, the sheen of it, the tonality of it. That's that's just that alone is just disturbing and creepy. Yeah. 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 Uh, I can imagine, yeah, I can't even remember, but yeah, stumbling across it on TV, thinking, you know, it's just gonna be another monster movie. Wow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I, another movie that I thought of for this, and you know, now we enter into the world perhaps of cliche because it's Taxi Driver. But there's something about Taxi Driver that is, well, first of all, it is... Uh, a lot of these other movies I've mentioned, I pretty much saw on TV. Uh, but Taxi Driver, I was finally my own man. I was able to go to the theater. That was, what, 76, maybe? Yep. So I've been 16 now, if possible. Uh, and um, I know where I saw it, 86th Street. And I, I don't know what I was anticipating because I wasn't necessarily a De Niro fan yet. But I was compelled to see this movie. And I don't know, that movie, to this day, it sits in the mind. It's the colors, it's the, the, the amazing soundtrack, which, of course, now we know is a holdover from Hitchcock. So that had a beautiful, haunting quality. It was indeed the testosterone and the pathos of, of De Niro, but Albert Brooks. I mean, all the secondary characters, seeing Keitel in a smaller role. Maybe I had seen Mean Speed. I really don't think so. I think it was Taxi Driver. This is the seminal, and to this day, it sits in the mind as a, just a work of art. It's almost, well, it's everything cinema should be, but in any case, it's just more than a movie. And the other thing is that uh, I could never follow it. I couldn't understand what was happening. You know, he, one minute he seems to be, he's going to go shoot the, the politician. So it was also this kind of fracturing of, of narrative storytelling. It really didn't follow a straight trajectory. It just seemed to be sort of cascading like his mm. uh, dementia. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's one reason. It doesn't fully resolve. It's, it's a series of odd uh, set pieces, you know, when he buys the guns from that guy. And you also felt the authenticity of these bit players. Yeah. And then obviously Jodie Foster was just so entrancing. And, um, and even to the point where as a young kid, I noticed that the one love scene with, or whatever, the, the slow dance with Kaitel oh, oh, and, and Jodie Foster was, uh, that was not in Travis's subjective mind. So I remember thinking that, what's that doing in the movie? So even then I was already in some way becoming yeah. a little tiny film Nazi with my own opinions about subjectivity, which maybe <laughs> I had learned from Hitchcock or something. But I remember that seemed like this weird scene, and was it therefore maybe just a projection of De Niro? Saying, "Who knows?" Uh, That's an interesting. Yeah, I've never thought about that. And it also, if nothing else, it's um, it puts you in a position where you have just absolutely no problem with whatever's going to happen to Harvey Keitel because <laughs> that remains one of the creepiest scenes I've ever seen in my life. And, and I, what a beautiful performance the two of them, and uh, and you know. Believe it or not, Keitel was being invited to play the Albert Brooks character, which would have been very strange and not as charming because some of the best stuff in the movie is when he's like, well, the guy at the newsstand, uh, you know, he has this finger and this finger. Well, I just got my thumb back. Thank God. You know, all of this little comedic stuff that he's yeah. obviously improvising. Um, everything about it, the Marty uh, backseat scene you know these were seminal things that really stuck in the mind to this day and i always joke that you know uh, speaking of film format i have the vhs i have the fucking 
DVD. I have the DVD special edition. I have the Blu-ray. The, no Laserdisc? You didn't buy the taxi driver Laserdisc? I have Cuckoo's Nest on Laserdisc. <laughs> Uh, I actually know our joke, but but that was the that was why I ended up buying a laserdisc player. I was not I was not rolling in money. I was working crew, and Taxi Driver was the first. I knew Criterion had started doing these things, and Taxi Driver came out with a Scorsese commentary, which in what is that show, nineteen forty three or something? <laughs> this is you're like, are you fucking kidding me? He's talking over the entire film about making. I have to have this. It was like. I had to oh spend a thousand dollars on the machine and two hundred dollars on the disc just to hear this. Have you yeah. tried playing it lately? Uh, no, I actually I think we've talked. I was really disappointed finally because it's mostly just him telling stories about shit that happened while they're making a movie. Yeah, and I was looking, but then well, when he started but, doing, but, he started but, doing your laser disc. It, it probably isn't going. It's probably to rotted. Yeah, it's probably rotted because they all got laser rot. From the, but from but the then do you remember he did um he started doing Michael Powell films where he do commentaries and mm -hmm. you would get because he wasn't just telling personal stories and you would get more insight into the making of those films both in how Michael Powell worked but you also got this amazing insight into how Scorsese thought about film um, which was so much more interesting than listening to him talk about the time they you know all got noodles after they wrapped the scene in the, <laughs> you know, at the movie theater or something <laughs> sorry I didn't mean that. That's a great, uh, the, just the making of on the Blu-ray or whatever is, is very charming, though, to see some of their process. And, mm. of course, they were shooting in an abandoned building, and the fact that they, they cut a hole in the floor for the overhead shot at the end, is, right. it's really cool to see. And it yeah. makes you feel like we don't, uh, we're just not trying hard enough because we're not, you know, sawing buildings in half to get our job. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, anyway, Marty's in my uh, day. Yeah, back in my day, we saw that ceiling. One movie that I put on my list, which is almost random, but I did want to sort of celebrate other kinds of cinema. And also I grew up in New York, so there and my parents were pretty cultured, so they would, you know, in my day in the early 70s, when a new Truffaut movie came out or a new, even Godard, you know, you were aware of this because I was in a big city. So right. uh, in, in acknowledgement of that, I put a movie called um, Playtime on my list, which is uh, Jacques Tati. And there was something about Jacques Tati uh, for all my obviously love of the dark arts, you know, um, there was something about his observation of life that has influenced me and and that I delight in, which is these sort of wide shots where he's commenting on modern life and uh, the absurdity of it and sort of the overly cleansed, you know, the dehumanizing. I mean, that was a theme in the yeah. 60s, obviously. Uh, but his also his use of sound, like squeaky shoes. You'll just see a wide shot of a hallway and a guy coming down this hallway and it's just like squeak, 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 squeak. I mean, I don't know if it's French or if it's just something about uh, Jacques Tati himself, but um and i just wanted to celebrate something a little offbeat and he had you know his own miseries in his career that was a, the most expensive movie made in france at the time and you know this wildly ambitious film that uh to anyone's eyes was quite simple in its ambition but you know he really did build these these sets that spoke about 
new glass facades and sort of the dehumanizing of, of, of modern life. So I don't know. I thought he would be fun to throw in there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Great. I mean, and, and clearly more than more than a lot of people who uh, spend a lot of time in, in the genre you have chosen. Um, your, your movies do feel like uh, they're made by someone who's seen something other than um, John Carpenter's The Thing. Which is one of my favorites. <laughs> I, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> but but there is that sense. I think it's one of the things, you know, even, even watching uh, Habit, where I was like, this is, it's it, especially then, it was just a sort of like, this is a serious filmmaker. And I love horror. I don't mean to, but you know what I'm saying, where I was like, this is somebody who's bringing this kind of really interesting aesthetic into the genre that I've not seen that often. Yeah. And, you know, uh, speaking of horror proper, so to speak, uh, it's funny that uh, I know exactly where I was when I saw uh, The Howling. Uh, I remember the screening and and there was the, uh, it was the two werewolf movies came out. I don't remember which was which. In a funny way, American Werewolf in London, I always felt was just, just a teeny bit too snarky for me. Uh, and you know, I still revere it. Obviously, that's when uh, both those films, we were having the thrill of the new werewolf uh, makeup. So that was just absolutely amazing for me. I grew up, my favorite monster was Wolfman. Um, and so to see this new take on werewolves, which had been sorely overlooked. I mean, I do like the makeup for I'm a Teenage Werewolf, but I don't even know if I ever saw the movie. Uh, or That's or- not a bad movie, actually. Of those of type. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, um, anyway, there's something about seeing these uh, two werewolf movies. And as I say, I thought that Landis was a little cheeky. Um, and uh, it still was cool because there was a sense of realism, you know, being perplexed by being a werewolf. And I appreciated that. Uh, but but the, both those movies were seminal. and. I'm sorry. Have we have we topped them yet, uh, Joe? What what do you think? <laughs> well, there, <laughs> was, there was some good werewolf movies. Ginger Snaps was pretty good. Yes, um, absolutely. But it's not. Uh, it's a it's a genre that's it's tricky because it doesn't really have anywhere to go. You know, when they did American Werewolf in Paris, uh, oh. much to much to Landis's chagrin, um, you know, and they said, "Well, we'll do a CGI werewolf." You know, and and it just doesn't work. It's just, yeah. you don't believe a word of it, a, a, a frame of it. It's just not right. There's no weight. There's no, the movement is wrong. Um, it, it's- um, you know, I'm about I, to say something that's gonna get me smacked the next time I see you. And Joe knows how much I love The Howling. I think it is one of the great, great, I think it's the great werewolf movie, the second half of the 20th century. But but um, I, I do have to point out, doesn't The Howling have animated werewolves in it, Joe? Are you? Uh... Yes, it does, because that was the only way we could afford to do that transformation. That's a tradition, actually. You know, remember this started with The Thing. The Thing has that whole section where it goes to a miniature, and it's bananas, right? Yeah. Uh, so that... And, and, and Rob did it just right after... He did it right after The Howling. Yeah, and Terminator uh, goes to uh, little animations as well. I mean, yeah. these are the great charms of those movies because they were right at the end of uh practical effects now having said that i think that joe johnson's uh poor wolfman 
it it suffers, but you know, there's a there's a nice movie in there. In other words, Benicio as as Long uh, Long Cheney as uh, Larry Talbot. I thought that was great casting, and I feel he has a soulful thing to offer. But that movie, um, well, that movie was messed up by the studio. I mean, it was they 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 took it away from the director. They reshot stuff. They burned up Rick Baker's models, you know, on, on camera, and they treated him very poorly. Uh, and he that he got out of the business after making that movie. He just said, yeah. "I can't I can't work like this because I can't work for people who don't respect what I do." And the, the problem with that movie, which looks great. Uh, is that it just is made by people who don't seem to understand how to make a movie like that. And 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 if you go down their their list of the Van Helsings and all those other things they've been doing, they just don't get it. You know, this they, is they, the they, legacy of uh, horror. Uh, what am I trying to say? Of uh, Hollywood trying to do horror, they literally do not understand the genre. They did the the Tom Cruise Mummy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they. I mean, I like I love Coppola's Dracula, and I sort of at least. I'm amused by the De Niro Frankenstein because that's so uh, bananas. When I, you know, I talked about Taxi Driver. Imagine my two worlds coming together. That De Niro's about to play the monster. <laughs> that movie doesn't work, but it's okay. Anyway, at least they were trying, and that has some dark stuff. They they made it so that the the bride was actually you know uh, Frankenstein, the doctor's girlfriend, Liz. I think so. It was. It was dark, at least, and that was the point. But the new Hollywood doesn't know how to make horror. They know how to make adventure and 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 superheroes and people, men in tights. But we, we had Lee Winnell on the show a while back. It was before the film had come out, and he talked about uh, he he had just gotten Invisible Man, which I, I thought he did a great job with. And he said his pitch. He went into them, and they were trying to figure out what to do now that the dark universe had sort of fallen apart. And literally his pitch to the studio for the invisible man was because they're like, what do we do with this guy? Like, you can't hurt him. He's invisible. He's this. And Lee went and he said, we're going to make him the bad guy. And they went, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Has anyone, seen, has anyone seen the James Whale invisible man? No, no. no. When, when, I was trying to remake, when I was trying to do a remake of The Mummy, the reason they didn't want to make it was because it was a modern take. And they said, we want it to be a period picture like the first Mummy, which, uh -oh. of course, was not a period it's not picture. not a period picture. So. <laughs> Exactly. And it's so discouraging. And uh, in a way, they should just leave it alone. Now, of course, with The Invisible Man, they are going to go for it. I happen to know. You guys must know. I mean, and it's funny. We're all shut out of the. Uh, they're going to get a bunch of youngsters. And it's, it's fine. But I'll tell you, if I could say this is terrible on the record, my problem with The Invisible Man was that it was a suit. And so to me, it's just a little bit teetering on, well, now she'll put the suit on for the sequel mm. and she'll go bust some heads. So it's a little bit playing a little close to uh, the superhero vibe. You know, whereas the old trope was, you know, taking a potion that changed your personality, in this case, physically. I mean, it's a Jekyll and Hyde story, but Claude Rain's performance, he's fucking batshit crazy. And that's what really is amazing about it. He has the superpower, but he's actually, it's that he's, crazy that's the problem yeah and um i don't know i just don't think uh, we'll see i'm sure this new slate there'll be something good going on but i still don't trust you know the whole point of horror is to really express some of the dark um themes of of life and morality and uh and rage and yeah. dysfunction hard hard to do that by committee 
Like, Joe, did, I was just talking to some friends the other night, and I was like, I, I need to remember to ask Joe, and I, I could probably look at my Blu-ray and find out. But did did you direct the the Ed Begley Invisible Man? No, stuff? I didn't. I wanted to. But oh, okay. it was already taken. Carl Gottlieb had it. Oh, okay. Because he did cool. a great job of it. But uh, <laughs> Carl Gottlieb directed something. Uh, yeah, he directed uh, this a couple of segments of Amazon Woman on the Moon, which is a sketch movie. Oh yeah. Okay. And it's, it's Ed Begley Jr. as the Invisible Man, or he only thinks he's, he's invisible. Only, he's, he's the only one who thinks he's invisible. Actually, he's just a naked guy naked. running around, and they're all indulging him. It's very funny. That's pretty good. <laughs> Which was all I was always fascinated by that as a kid. That like, uh, yeah. He's, so he's a he's a the monsters and naked. Well, there's a new Kino Lorber Blu-ray of, <laughs> of Amazon Woman on the Moon with all sorts yeah. of extras. I have it. I have it. Um, Ray uh, for Kino Lorber. Yes. Yeah, they're doing a great job, actually. Yeah, they bought. Well, I have a couple movies on Kino when it was Kino, and I have a couple. And Lorber bought a Habit back in the day and put out that VHS you described. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fantastic! Not not the one I had. I promise you. <laughs> nobody nobody had paid for that one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, God, yeah. Where's your that, that? That seems like a natural. The uh, your your Blu-ray set. Oh yeah. Well, that was Shout Factory, and they're also fantastic for. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, they're very good. They did one. I'm an idiot. Yeah, they did a Blu-ray set. Oh, I thought you were. Uh, no, it really happened. I sort of. It was one of those, you know, when you're at my level of showbiz, it's all just sort of self-promotion. I'm really just like the guy busking on the corner. So what I did is. IFC had bought some of my movies and I figured out how to get Wendigo, one of my films, under their umbrella. And I got all my movies all to be bought by IFC. And then I said, well, naturally, since you own my whole collection, we need to put out a Blu-ray set. (laughs) So I went to uh, Shout Factory and I pitched it to them. And I'll never forget that they said, well, we're going to have a meeting about it. And they came back and they said, well, we did the numbers and we'll do it. You could tell it was like, it was just this close. I was so excited that somehow my numbers, how did that ever happen? Uh, so I orchestrated it and they made a beautiful, did a great job. And then the fun thing is that then uh, IFC and Shout Factory became partners and they beat each other titles. So, you know, whatever, I'm the origin story of probably where they really made money on other things. But I feel okay. Yeah, Josh, Josh, was, Josh was getting you mixed up with the Synapse uh, box set of Al Adamson stuff. No, I, I want to do this. <laughs> I'm often confused. <laughs> I feel terrible. These are sort of things that, if, you know, if, if we were pros, I'd have, I'd have figured it out. But yeah, I'm looking at the Larry Fessenden collection, still in print. I literally, I just ordered the Blu-ray, so I hope, oh, that, makes, I hope that makes up for. Hey, you're always worth coming in. You made a sale. There you go. You just made forty-three cents or whatever it is. That you did. Seven cents, man. I'm drinking tonight. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna fly out to New York and sit outside your doorstep and make you autograph it for me someday. Ah, oh, certainly, certainly. Um, <laughs> uh, well, that's great, but I, there needs to be a bigger one. You, you, you got, you've got way more than these. I agree, and I have. Uh, well, now I hope. Uh, well, never mind me. Uh, so another movie I wanted to celebrate. I'm not sure why. Uh, well, in other words, it's later, um, but is Fargo. I just think Fargo, uh, you know, everybody loves the Coen brothers, but and they've made great stuff since. But uh, there's something very uh, austere 
and simple and and it sits in the mind. I like these movies I've referenced the taxi driver just sits there as a color and a series of uh, a mood. Um, Fargo is also it's a snow movie, which I really love. Um, and in a way, that's a whole, you know, the thing, of course, is a snow movie. Uh, I tried to make a snow movie, um, too. Uh, but anyway, Fargo has just such a heart to it. I think Francis McDormand is so sweet and surrounded by real chaos. And, you know, it's a theme that the part of, that the Coens come back to often, which is, you know, that the world just makes no sense. But here, I think they treat that with great tenderness and pathos and satire. Uh, the, there are just so many great scenes of a guy getting himself into more and more trouble, uh, you know, the car salesman. Um, so, uh, and it was also, it was, I guess they'd already made a couple movies and they were already a thing, but it was kind of still when indie films, like they, maybe they were at the Oscars, but they were also at the Spirit Awards. Right. They felt like they were still <clears throat> one of us. Um, also, it's still at that point where you're hoping their next one will be as good as the last one, as opposed to yeah, now, where it's it, like pretty much certain it will be. <laughs> and by many accounts, you know, I mean, some people will stand by Raising Arizona, and that's fantastic. And I borrowed their camera work from that movie. It had a big influence on stuff I had done. Uh, so anyway, it felt like the Coens were an example of indie success. And I mean, outside of the genre, because yeah. we've always had uh, scrappy filmmakers. Uh, like Romero and Carpenter and whoever else and all of us really, uh, but but it was fun to see the indie guys sort of staking their claim. Yeah, in, in the Hollywood. Well, there, there's a kind of veneer of horror to that film too. I mean, just, oh well, just... that's the point. I mean, yeah. uh, wood chippers in anyone? Well, I'm actually yeah, I mean, the wood chippers. But I, I, the one to me that's always you know it's not obviously nothing compares to that. It's it's when uh, Peter Stormare is just sitting in the back of her car. And she's just trying to grapple with him, you know, and what he means and what he is. And that's just... well, that's what I mean about heart. I mean, yeah. the fact that she says, why would you do this? You do such a thing. And, you know, in her sweet little accent, but it's so uh, profound. And no, it's it could have been Hannibal Lecter back there. Could have been the yeah. end of seven, you know, but instead it's this movie that has other qualities and there's great tenderness to that film and then um and she's also, asking questions that you're not used to you know because nobody in seven asks kevin spacey yeah. that nobody asks hannibal lecter you know why would you do such terrible things it's well exactly it's assumed because you're in a horror picture yeah um, yeah also uh the blood the gore that they use is fantastic when buscemi just gets that really random cut and then he's got the the napkin stuck oh. to his face and it's just like yeah. I really love uh, horror or violence that that feels uh, well real. I mean, that's not saying much, but you know, a lot of horror we have heightened violence, and that's one thing. But it's really fun to bring it back to just the physical inconvenience of having yeah. your. Um, obviously, Henry serial killer. You mentioned uh, Texas Chainsaw. You know, these are, and then Man Bites Dog. Do you guys know that film? <laughs> Well, I've only seen it once. I own it. It's on my shelf. I, I, I've, I've only seen it once too, because I don't think I could ever watch it again. I don't think so, but it's, it's in the mind as I it, like. It is. It's, 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 it's like a pebble in your shoe, except it's in your brain. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's, I, I, I like to tell this story that when I was doing a, a picture for Warner brothers, a Looney Tunes 
with you know a Bugs Bunny movie. Yeah. The guy I had to deal with who was running the studio had a gigantic three sheet for Man Bites Dog in his office. And you would walk past the three sheet, One which is gun. a guy with a gun pointing it down to the bottom of the, of the three sheet. And from the bottom of it comes blood and a baby uh, rattle. Pacifier, right? Or Pacifier. Whatever. And, and, this is, and this guy loves this movie enough to have it on his wall and see it every day. And, and he's telling me how to make a comedy about Bugs Bunny. That's fucking nuts, man. That's the one. I mean, I'm with you. I don't, I don't ever need to see it again. And I also own it. The one I'm, I guess I'm maturing because they've come out with a Blu ray now of Irreversible that contains a version of it back in, in uh, narrative order as opposed to backwards. Oh, really? Yeah, that he, just that makes he me cut. say that just makes me say no. Well, I'm that's saying I'm like no. that's an amazing movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is this is what I got to work with, and and I'm like, oh, that would be interesting to see. And then I go, yeah, then I'd have to see Irreversible again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> then I'd have to see Reversible. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, you could do the same thing with Memento too. I mean, you could find all but these that, I could sit through and put them back again. into chronological order. I could sit through Memento again. The reason I appreciate this digression is that um, I have what I call my my hardcore shelf, and it is in fact irreversible. Man bites dog, Henry serial killer, uh, also Funny Games the original, which is a movie mm-hmm. I actually dislike because I I, I disagree with the premise uh, of what's his name that I'm going to movies to see people tortured. That's actually right. not why I even like yeah. horror movies. So I actually disagree fervently with his assumption about the audience. However, yes, thank you. Yep. Um, also, he yep. believed it enough to make it to make a remake of it. Damn remake. Uh, <laughs> but there's still at its core, and this is maybe before Inside and some of the French extreme. This was still when uh, extreme horror was pretty shocking, and I think that uh, the core murder and also killing the kid. You know, if you're a parent, that's just, it's almost more than I can take. So once again, only seen it once, never need to see it again, often cited as an annoyance, but it does belong on that shelf of yeah. the ultra violent movies that are, that are art versus, you know. Well, it's a, very, it's a, it's because it's a, it's a very clever movie. I mean, it's a very clever premise and it's, and it's really well done and it's got a lot of funny things in it. You know, the fact that there's another group of filmmakers shooting another <laughs> serial killer that they oh, run yeah. into. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just it's just full of really clever things, but it is it's it's the most nihilistic movie that I've ever seen, and it just put me in a place mentally that I don't think I want to go back to. I agree, and I rented it with my, my wife, I think, on VHS, and we were like, "Oh well, what's this going to be?" And <laughs> hard, hard for life. <laughs> I remember going to uh, Sundance. The only time I was ever there, and I was going on the dime of this this producer. Um, who was, you know, putting us up and everything. And we had, for whatever reason, every movie we went to see that year was just bad. And, but I was really excited because we had tickets for the new one from the guy who had made I Stand Alone, uh, yeah. which was irreversible. And I remember the last minute, um, one of us got an invite. To, it was like an ICM party or something. I'm like, who the fuck? Why? We're, we're, I live in LA. I can go to an ICM. I want to see this movie. But the guy who was sort of footing our bill was like, I want to go to this party. And we are like, ugh. I gave away my irreversible tickets and I still remember ah. walking past the theater to get to the ICM party. And it was like 10 after eight. The movie had started at eight. 
we're walking past the Theodore Airverse and we're showing, and people were stumbling out into the street, pale and falling down and crying. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> I could have been in there. <laughs> oh, oh, guys. So on the shelf next to those movies, do you know the film Angst? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> no, you got to see this movie. It's just a very uh, never recover from it kind of movie. <laughs> yeah. That's a film festival. Just show that shelf. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the last night of the uh, of the thing, no one's coming to that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, angst. Oh, my God. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for these great memories. <laughs> well, uh, on my other, my list, uh, I think I have The Shining. You know, it fits into my category of um, works of art. I mean, you could probably say that. And I might even prefer Dr. Strangelove. You know, the thing about Kubrick is you have such a nice small uh, selection. You can sort of... Uh, decide on your mood what which one you want to favor obviously clockwork orange but but in a funny way yeah i mean uh, maybe it is dr strangelove there's something about that that the blend of humor and and peter sellers doing the three roles nevertheless i said the shining because i've always been a, a nicholson fan and uh and when i saw that movie i didn't like it i saw it in the same theater where i saw taxi driver this was on 86th street uh, it's not that I didn't like it, but I was a little confused and it was too bright. And, you know, all the things that, of course, are so wonderful about it. Uh, but it also stays with you. And it's just um, a strange sculpture. I mean, even now, when you rewatch it, everything is so oddly slow. You know, <laughs> Scatman's performance. Like, and you're like, what is happening? <laughs> this is just not real life. And, of course, the. Uh, almost as great as the film is the little 20 minute movie that his daughter made about oh, the making it. Yeah. yeah. It's a very precious glimpse behind the scenes. And, um, and Nicholson says, well, Stanley always wanted something different. He didn't want naturalism. And I had spent my life trying to be a naturalistic uh, actor and he pushed me into this other place. And I really feel speaking of fulcrums, like Man of a Thousand Faces was a certain fulcrum for me. There's something about Nicholson. He never really recovered. And from then on, he always became a wonderful Jack Nicholson imitator. Right. Uh, no, that's a good, <laughs> but like, yeah, the Jack Nicholson pre-Shining could not have played the Joker in Batman. Exactly. And yeah. uh, mind you, also on my list for what it's worth is Cuckoo's Nest, which I think is one of the great, uh, ensemble pieces ever put together. Um, obviously, Milos, she did something with that group. Every one of them became famous. I mean, they're all playing misfits, and suddenly they're the star of Back to the Future and Break Taxi. And Taxi, Taxi. Uh, yep. Who would have known? How would Danny DeVito have had a career without this? <laughs> That's true. Imagine, yeah, that guy's going to be a huge star. Yeah, exactly. And the guy from the Hills Have Eyes. Uh, right, Michael Merriman shows up in that. Kind of wonderful. Who's a great singer. He was in a movie we did, and there's a lovely behind the scenes where he just goes into some opera, and everybody on the set is like, what? Wow. So, uh, 
but Cuckoo's Nest is just a treasure. And, you know, it's also spoke to me in my uh, teens about rebellion, all the, all the good stuff that's all been distorted in the modern world. But when there was still the idea of rebelling against the, yeah. the man or in this case, the nurse. <laughs> um, so. Well, I've got, I've got two directors here who seem to be on the same page with, with these things. Why? And I have some ideas, but I don't think I can enunciate them. As you say, The Shining is very deliberately paced, but it is not a slow movie. And why is The Shining not a slow movie and Dawn of the Dead is? Because The Shining is hypnotic, as in, in the way that many of Kubrick's movies are hypnotic. Barry Lyndon is hypnotic. Uh, and, and, but it, as good as George was at doing what he did in Night of the Living Dead, he wasn't on that level. He wasn't on the level of Kubrick. He wasn't doing that kind of work. Uh, and he came from industrial films, you know, where the idea is you, you present your idea and get off and get to the next idea. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think the two movies are comparable. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I just, uh, well, what is it? It is wonderful to think about Kubrick. There's a special sauce there. I mean, as I've referenced, I love Marty. I love uh, a lot of these giants of cinema, even Spielberg is just fun to watch his craft. But, but what is it? There's something in Kubrick that is uh, mesmerizing and, uh, and it's not dazzling. It's just very still. And yet there's some other stuff. It's just a fantastic blend. Hard to put your finger on. Yeah. Um, one other maestro that I wanted to reference and and through maybe one of his less cherished films or whatever the word is, is The Tenant by oh, yeah. our boy uh, Roman Polanski. Yeah. Uh, a big influence on me to some degree on the movie Habit that I made. And uh, But I, that is everything that's amazing about Polanski, which is this real detailed naturalism uh, and then when he wants, you can tell he's like, oh, fantasy films, ha, 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 you know, Rosemary's Baby, ha, ha, ha. But effortlessly, he can yeah. bring in a sense of dread and menace and, you know, uh, satanic uh, flavoring. And in the case of The Tenant, it's just like I actually, like Taxi Driver, it's a movie that I delight in not quite knowing what the hell's going on. You know, clearly this guy is having troubles uh, getting along, but there's a feeling of alienation and, and just uh, some slight hysteria. I am not Simon Schul. I want chocolate, not coffee. And just this whole thing. And the fact that it's Polanski uh, is, is very charming. And uh, my brother sent me to this double feature when I was little. He said, I want you to go to these movies. And first I saw Knife in the Water and I recognized that this was a, a really well-crafted movie. And I thought, that's cool. Why did my brother send me to this? I, I can't wait to see the second uh, on the bill. And then came the tenant, and I just related to it so deeply in terms of the, the sense of horror, the sense of the, the color of the, the way he depicts Paris and the alienation and the pathos of this guy who's really quite timid, um, just succumbing to paranoia. So uh, I... I count myself among, uh, I'm a Polanski fan. I always say the judge that sent him out of the 
country ruined him because he's never made as good of movies as his his American period, in my opinion. Uh, but uh, the Tenant is a real gem, and so is Cool the Sock, uh, a completely bananas film with, um, you know, uh, Lionel Stander. Donald. <laughs> yes, Lionel Stander. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. They didn't get along. He was apparently just a brute on set, but he's so great in the movie. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. And let me get, and there's also that, uh, you know, directors starring themselves in their own movies that, that may have spoken to you in some fashion or. Yeah, I think so. And it's a trilogy. They call it the apartment trilogy, obviously, uh, Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby, and then The Tenant. And to me, The Tenant is sort of somehow the most appealing and maybe it's because it's Roman himself in there showing his vulnerability. I mean, of course he's now been a little bit canceled and, you know, reviled. A little bit canceled. <laughs> he, he can't even get his last movie shown here and it's supposed to be really good. Oh, is it? That's, the Dreyfus movie? Yeah. It's supposed to be terrific. Oh, it's, well, didn't it win somewhere? And then yeah, I it won a bunch of awards and stuff, but they, 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 nobody will buy it. No, no streaming service will carry it because he's canceled. It's fucking bananas. Anyway, I don't know what. Uh, we'll get canceled if we go on about that. But I'll tell you, uh, yeah, he's still a great artist. And well, the good news is we never release these, so nobody ever hears them. So don't worry. <laughs> we just do them for ourselves. Me and Joe, we just like to talk to people. <laughs> Let me tell you what I really think. <laughs> you know how I was basically listing a bunch of classics? Well, let me tell you what pictures I really like. <laughs> Um, uh, let me let me let me also break with our tradition because uh, you, you you brought up Scorsese a couple times and um, you're you're in a, a movie of his that I feel inexplicably um, doesn't get talked about very much and that I love with a thank passion. you for saying that and I would imagine that you have just by nature I've been in it had more conversations with people who love that movie than I have because you know I don't walk down the street and people who love bringing out the dead don't walk up to me but what do you what, 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 I don't even know what I'm trying to say. Why do you think that is? What is? Well, you know, you think of like Bob Dylan. There's some albums in there that just get lost. And yet if you put it on, you're like, oh, my fucking God, if this wasn't Dylan, this would be right. the guy's greatest work. So there's something about uh, bringing out the dead that's um, it's just one among many wonderful films. But it has such an atmosphere and an atmosphere of sort of brooding despair. Yeah. about the city and yet of course the thing about marty is that he is always engaged with spiritual issues which is yeah. like something don't tell the fans of goodfellas and taxi driver that that's really what he's making movies about but it really is there on the screen in um you know the character nicholas cage says i'm i'm nothing but a grief mop which i, I love that idea of just absorbing people's despair in their last moments because he's obviously a paramedic uh, also, it has great performances by John Goodman and uh, is it Bing Rames or is it Sizemore? Yeah, yeah. And, and and as usual, Marty has a great soundtrack. It's really atmospheric, and it is. It's Paul Schrader, so it should yeah. be uh, considered one of their New York trilogies. What's the other one anyway? <laughs> what is the other one? The Park Raging Raging Bull. Wait, what do you Raging say? Bull, Raging Bull, Raging Bull, Driver. No, with Schrader. Oh, with Schrader. With Schrader. I guess Raging Bull, but I would, is there something else? Anyway, 
Uh, last temptation. Or last temptation. That New York trilogy. <laughs> Although the funny thing is that Harvey Keitel's Harvey idea Keitel, is, yeah. might as well be a fucking in Brooklyn. He's like, yo, Jesus, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> it's the strangest performance in that movie. <laughs> I don't. Very interesting. Um, yeah, no, thank you for that because I, I love that movie, and it's it's just it just it just seems to have fallen from the radar. Yeah, yeah. In a way, oh, even after know. hours, it's starting to get rediscovered by people, which is nice because that that one doesn't feel like Martin Scorsese film. You don't walk into that and go, "Oh, here, here comes Scorsese." But, yeah, except for the camera moves, it's yeah, so bananas. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. feels yeah, but um, well, there's a career to delight in. Uh, yeah, he's done all right. And it's not, it's not over. Oh, no, it's not. He's Thanks got, to Netflix, he's actually making another movie. Oh, my God. Good old Marty. Hey, we should get that guy on the show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, he's seen a couple of pictures. He's seen some pictures. That's the, that's the problem. It's all like Scorsese. It's like, what is he going to say that we haven't heard him say 20,000 times before? It's like, but he'll say it really fast, which is... Uh, yeah, it can fit in a lot of information there in one hour. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Oh, my uh, Lord. Speaking of greatest movies ever made dead zone is among them oh, yeah. always be when when greg stolson was president for four years yeah absolutely <laughs> i mean how many times did you think this is the greg stolson it's it's amazing trump really brought all of that home i just wish christopher walken would have headed over there and yeah. <laughs> we'll cut that part yes the um and that is one of the great um uh, i guess that's jeffrey bohm who wrote the script yep um you know, because I remember, it, I feel like the Dead Zone was the first King book I read because I was reading them as they were coming out more or less as a kid, and it was the first one where it was like not quite as great as you know, it wasn't The Shining, it wasn't The Stand, and they made some changes, but the change that he made, because I don't know if you remember the book or if you ever read it, he just grabs a kid out of the audience, and the decision to make the kid the the child of the woman that he was going to marry. That right. it could have been his child just gives it a thousand pounds of emotional weight that it just doesn't have in the book. That whole movie is an exercise in, I mean, you wouldn't think it would work, that it's so sprawling on the one hand, but it's just a series of really concise, you know, I still think about the, the scissors. Oh, <laughs> the bathtub. like, oh. oh my God, it's just a. Uh, very memorable and and the snow and that gazebo i mean and the ice is gonna break you know so many uh wonderful evocative things and it's you're not allowed to say this but it's really one of my favorite um cronenberg movies you know oh, we're supposed too. to support each other's uh low budget efforts but honestly uh that and the fly two of things he did as adaptation and of course your picture um uh, but, I, I, think, yeah. I think I think he's gotten enough support for the I think I think he got all the support he needed for the low budget ones. He's doing all right. It's it's okay. He's doing if, just fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I do uh, <laughs> I just revere the dead zone for its uh, yeah. its efficiency as well as its heart. And it's yeah. also Christopher Walken. <laughs> uh, and honestly, that might be my favorite of his films. Um, I, it is mine. And uh, uh, yeah. thanks, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So I knew Jeff. I, I knew the other writer too. <laughs> you could be friends with two writers. <laughs> yes, uh, Larry, Larry. Thank you thank so you much. So much. Uh, the film is Jacob's Wife. What's What's the um, where Where 
we live in this world now where I'm like, oh, it's out there somewhere. <laughs> I know it's so weird. I believe it's on Shutter uh, on the sure, 16th okay. of April. And okay. if I got that wrong, they don't pay me enough. To, what am I going to promote their picture too now? <laughs> well, here's the other great thing is, is uh, it'll, it'll be there eventually anyway. <laughs> well, but you know, once people get a look at you on this, you may get the lead in the remake of Going My Way or something like that. You, know? <laughs> you waited a whole hour to say that. <laughs> there, there is a, uh, and also I have to ask, and I can cut this imitator program if you're going to wait until the end, because if you go, fuck you, mother. But as a, as a, uh, uh, let's say a, a gentleman who tends towards portliness myself, uh, and I guess I hadn't seen you in anything in a little while. And I was like, oh, okay, so Larry's putting on some weight. Now I look at you now, is it makeup? Did you, did you do a De Niro for it? Uh, did they just catch you? Um, right well, I, I'll tell you the truth. And, you know, I'm very sensitive about my weight because it's just annoying. And I have been thin in my day and I've been filmed thin and naked and all those things. So you really feel age creeping up on you. Uh, but uh, I think... What was sweet is that, you know, they had the hair so cropped that I just looked like a big pimple. And then you have the, the collar and you're like, there's no way this guy could ever look good. And then, you know, the, the beige pants. I mean, so, no, I probably was about the same weight, but I'm just styled in such a way to wow, it's amazing. bring out all the curves. Yeah, I was generally startled when you popped up and I was like, oh, okay, he, he took it all off. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's amazing. It's amazing. And, and uh, I haven't seen you quite play that kind of part before. So. Yeah, and it's important. I mean, acting for me is uh, is about uh, stripping away the vanity. So I knew that I was looking a, a little uh, or a lot around the edges. But uh, I, I think you should tell people you did it for the movie. I think you should take. Well, oh, I, I do uh, actually. I spared you the joke, but that's what I say to everyone else. <laughs> Barbara well, looked good. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the other thing. Compared to Barbara, I look twice as bad. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, thank you thanks, so much, Rand. This, this has been a blast, and the movie's terrific, and I look forward to seeing many more from you, and I uh, can't wait for my Blu-ray set to get here. So. Thanks, guys. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Stay safe out there, folks. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.